Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Well, good morning. How are we doing? You good? You guys survived the cold morning this morning, so that's good. Everybody have a good Christmas? Yes? No? Maybe? Okay. Two people had a good Christmas. That's good. Three people. Good. Um, well, I, uh, I'm glad to be back here um, for Christmas. I get to go and see my family out in North Carolina and then uh, just celebrate with them. Uh, but I don't know if you feel like me when you go and visit family. There are times where it just becomes apparent that you're ready to come home. Um, I love my family. I love my nieces, nephews, my sisters, my brother. But by the end of the Christmas break, I'm, I'm ready to come home. And it's mostly because I'm ready to come home because of worshiping with you guys and just being with the family of God. Um, it is great to be back here and um, just being able to celebrate what God has done for us in Christ as well as worship with you all. Um, it's, it's good to be back. So um, if you haven't been here before, uh, when we walk through our New Year's and kind of New Year's series epiphany, uh, we are walking through uh, what we would consider the manifestation of Christ. And if you're not familiar with Epiphany or uh, either haven't been here at our church before or have seen the liturgical calendar, um, what Epiphany recognizes uh, in between the time of Christ's birth up until a point between uh, the Easter and the end of Lent uh, is just the, the life and event of Jesus. And what we hope to do is highlight how his life overflows into who we are uh, and how it changes us, how we should rest in this truth and how we should pursue more likeness of Christ as his disciples. And so that's what we're going to be jumping off into this year. Um, and for me, I, I enjoy preaching this sermon. Um, I, I get a, a yearly text from some of my friends. Typically, it's a meme, and it often reads like this. Um, happy, happy let your youth pastor preach weekend is what I often get. Um, and we don't have any youth, but it just kind of signifies the lead pastor needed a break, right? Um, but even in the funny memes like that, I enjoy preaching this New Year's uh, because, one, I enjoy New Year's. I enjoy the lists and the resolutions. So I don't know if any of you are like me, but I enjoy kind of taking a look and taking stock of my own life. Uh, I don't like the areas where I failed, but I know that they help. And so oftentimes what I like to do is, is help us think through what will this next year look like for our lives, as well as for our church. And so that's what we're going to be doing through this next series, as well as uh, as I preach this morning, is kind of taking a look at what we hope to accomplish in 2022 as the district church. So we're two, two days in. Um, and as I said, you know, New Year's brings resolutions. Has anybody already a New Year's resolution? Anybody have a list? One, two? Yes. Okay. Has anybody failed their resolutions already? Yes. Awesome. So have I. That's good. Uh, what's interesting, I was looking through this week uh, some information on New Year's resolutions, and uh, this apparently has changed. Most people now quit their New Year's uh, lists or resolutions by January 19th. So you guys still have 17 days to create a list and quit to fall into the average of what people do. It used to be February, so... Now it's shortened, which is very interesting to see how people are responding to 
their own resolutions. But for 2022, uh, I'm hopeful in this fact. I, I know for some of us, 2021 hard year. Do I keep going in and out? Okay. I, that's going to be hard for me not to move back and forth. But anyways, so 2021 was, was a hard year for some of us. 2021 was also a good year for some of us. And what I want us to be able to do as believers is to look back at 2020, 2021, whatever year it might be, and reflect in the goodness of God and be thankful for what he has done for us. As we were reminded in James, as we walked through that book, James's opening line to his brothers and sisters in Christ is to count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So as we walk into this new year, I hope that we're able to look back at the good and the bad and say, God is using that to make me perfect and complete, that I may lack in nothing. What a beautiful promise that is for us. But as we walk into this year, I want us to begin to reflect on what I would call a rule of life. And if you've heard me preach this sermon before or you understand what a rule of life is, great. For those of you that don't, rule of life is something that is similar to your resolutions, but it has more to do with the habits that you have created and formed into who you're going to be. And so my hope for this church as we walk through this Epiphany series is that we would begin to or even tweak our culture of disciples. And that would be our rule of life, is that people would know our church to be a church that makes disciples, and that we are disciplers of Jesus Christ. And so one of the things that you're going to hear throughout this year is becoming a better disciple. That's why we've chosen the next couple of weeks to take a look at what it means to fulfill the one another's. And there's 59 of them in the New Testament, and through all 59 of those, but we do plan to take a look at the four themes in which they fall under and how you can fulfill those one another's inside the body of Christ to become a better discipler and a better, better disciple of Jesus. Now, for those of you who might hear that and go, man, that makes me nervous because discipleship is not something I am good at. Here's how I want to define discipleship for us to help alleviate that fear. Mark Dever defines discipleship like this, helping others follow Jesus. That's it, helping others follow Jesus. And so my hope this year is that we would elevate that idea, we would elevate that definition to helping each other follow Jesus better to love him more, to know him more, to pursue him more. And the reason I give this definition and why we want to stick to this definition of discipleship is to break down the preconceived ideas or false notions that discipleship is only done by the pastors or only done by the educated or only done by knowing everything about what the Bible has to say. That's not what discipleship is. Discipleship is helping others follow Jesus. So you can do that by going and watching a mom take care of her kids, 
and trusting in the Lord as she's about to freak out on them. You can go do that, helping someone change a tire, do their shopping, everyday life. It, it can include Bible studies and coffee, but it can also just include, be, be included in everything that they do. And so we want to elevate what discipleship looks like in this next coming year. So I'm hopeful for that. I was texting our leadership team yesterday that I have a hopeful anticipation of 2022 because I believe that if we can really press into this definition of what discipleship looks like, if we can pursue faithfully the 59 one another's, what it looks like to love and serve and honor one another, I truly believe that our rule of life as a church can be defined by discipleship. And I don't want you to hear that we're pushing aside uh, evangelism or missions or hospitality. That's not what we're doing. In discipleship, I believe that those things will overflow into our lives. As we are helping others follow Jesus, it should naturally overflow that we are sharing Jesus with those around us, that we are being hospitable because we recognize what Jesus has given to us in grace. And so that's my hope for us, that our rule of life, that we would begin to, or as I said, tweak our culture to be better disciples of Jesus. And so as we continue through January, we're going to see how that works. But this morning, what I want us to do is, I don't want us to talk about the how, I want us to take a look at the why, why we pursue discipleship. And it's found in this beautiful doctrine of the union with Christ. And so my main point this morning that everything is going to flow through and fall under is this. That the one and others start with being united to Christ. Or, to make it a little bit easier for your notes, and I think this sounds better, united in Christ, united to one another. This is where the foundation, the root of why we pursue one another, why we love one another, why we fulfill all of these one another commands is because we have been united to Christ and united to each other. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We're going to see how Paul expounds upon this pursuit of unity in the body that's rooted in being United in Christ. Starting in verse 1, Paul says this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, count, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Let us go to him in prayer this morning. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy that you've shown to us. Thank you that it is through grace that we are united to you as sons and daughters. And we are united to one another to serve, to love, to honor, to respect, to pursue. And so, Lord, I I pray that as we take a look at this beautiful doctrine of the union with Christ, that it would compel us to pursue unity inside this church, and it would compel us to pursue unity inside the body, the universal church that you have given to us, Lord. Thank you for this great grace. It's in Jesus' name I pray. So I don't know if any of you have experienced this reality before, but people can rob us of joy. Am I right? Maybe some of you felt that this past Christmas. Maybe parents gave kids gifts and their response was not as expected. Maybe you saw nieces and nephews were ungrateful for the gifts that you gave. I have a story of my own life when I was nine. Uh, my parents blindfolded me and brought me out to the front yard, and they videotaped this entire thing, so I can't get rid of it. They blindfolded me, brought me out, and my dad had a brand new bike, and he takes the blindfold off, and on video, you can see me being very, very ungrateful by saying, I wanted a skateboard. <laughs> yeah, very ungrateful, and something that we all laugh about now even 35 years later, right? Some of us have experienced this, ungratefulness from children or siblings. Some of us have experienced unruly family members who take conversations too far and they rob us of the joy of being able to celebrate Christmas and New Year's with friends and family. Some of us have been around, or sometimes even we complain so often that we rob the joy of a situation because we can't recognize what we do have over what we don't have. There's an old Charlie Brown comic strip that I read this week where Linus says this, I love mankind. It's the people I can't stand. Sometimes people can rob us of joy. And as Paul pens this letter to the Philippians, this is what he's facing. He's facing people that are trying to rob him of his joy. We find in the beginning of the chapter, there are people in Rome who are preaching the gospel against him to defame his name. And then we find later on in the book of Philippians that it is the very church that he helped start that have division that are splitting in their unity. And yet, as he pens this letter, you can see that it is the people in the church that are his most, or is where his most concern goes to. It's the reason that he writes this letter. You see, in chapter 1, he says this, 
I desire that you stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he goes on in chapter 2 to say, complete my joy. You see, when Epaphroditus had brought a generous gift to Paul in Rome, he brought two pieces of news, one good and one bad. The good news was that the church had concern for him being in prison. And he was thankful for that. You can see in his writings as he closes the letter that he recognizes their gift. But the bad news that Epaphroditus also brought was that the church was fighting amongst themselves. That there was division and a threat to the unity in the Philippian church. We see in chapter 3 there's false teachers from the outside that are trying to come in and preach a false gospel. And in chapter 4, we see that there's division among members who are disagreeing from within. And so Paul is appealing here in chapter 2 as he begins his letter. He's appealing to this church to pursue unity and pursue unity through humility. Warren Rearsby says true spiritual unity comes from within. It's a matter of the heart. And so this is what Paul does, is that he appeals to the heart of the Philippian church. And he appeals to two things that get after the heart of the believer. The first thing that he appeals to is the highest spiritual motive. If you look to verse 3, we see that Paul says, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in the full accord and of one mind. And then he gets after their motives from the heart. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And he follows this up by saying, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Paul is graciously saying here, your disagreements reveal that there is a spiritual problem in your fellowship. It isn't going to be solved by rules. It's not going to be solved by threats or external changes. It's going to be solved when your hearts are made right with Christ and with one another. So he's appealing to their motives. He's appealing to their hearts to think about others better than yourself. Paul wanted them to see that selfishness and pride were being revealed through these disagreements. And that there could not be any joy or unity in their hearts until this was addressed. Paul not only appeals to their motives, but he also appeals to their character. But in appealing to their character, he gives the greatest example of humility that we have in Scripture. And that is Christ. Look at verse 5. He says, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul gives an example for the Philippian church as well as us as believers to look to Christ as our example of humility, who he was, God didn't count being equal with God a thing to be grasped, and he put on flesh and became a servant and died. 
You see, oftentimes this passage, and rightly so, is used to prove how Jesus is both God and man. How he was God, but he put on flesh, and so he lived here on earth. Is what is known as the hypostatic union. And this is a beautiful and right doctrine. But oftentimes we can use this doctrine without thinking about what Paul is actually trying to do in this passage. Paul isn't thinking about or writing about this hypostatic union. He's not talking about or trying to point to the fact that God was, Jesus was fully God and fully man. What Paul is doing in this passage is pastorally showing the people of God in Philippi that the greatest example of humility is Christ. That the Son of God would put on flesh and become a servant to give us an example of what true servanthood looks like by dying on a cross. He's encouraging the church at Philippi to remember this example and to have this mind amongst themselves as they pursue unity with humility. This humility is the foundation for why we live selflessly. This humility and this example is why we count others better than ourselves. Why we look not only to our own interests, but also the interest of others. Because this is what Christ did. And he gives us this example to follow. And it's important for us to this type of humility. This biblically correct view of what humility looks like. Because like meekness, humility is often looked at as something to avoid in this world. But biblical humility, as Andrew Murray says, is this. It is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. The displacement of self by the enthronement of God. I love this example by Corey Ten Boom. She fits exactly what Andrew Murray has to say. Uh, Billy Graham came to her many, many years after she began speaking, and he would ask her how she handled all the nice things people would say to her after she would do her presentations. And she said, Billy, I just gather them all up like a bouquet of flowers, and at the end of the day, give them to Jesus. This is what true humility looks like. It's not, she's not putting herself down, but she's ultimately lifting God up. It is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. The true, the true humble servant of God, Paul says, yields themselves to Christ to be a servant to use what he is and has for the glory of God and the good of others. And this is the example that Paul is calling us to. This is Paul's appeal to the church to live in unity to not allow divisions to split the church, to not allow quarrels to separate brothers and sisters in Christ. Strive, he says in chapter 1, to live side by side with one another for the sake of the gospel. And Paul's root, Paul's foundation for his appeal for unity is found in this doctrine of the unity, in our unity with Christ. 
He doesn't give an external example. He doesn't say, well, be in unity because you guys have given so much to me. Be in unity because you guys look like you should be able to strive with one another or because you do so well outside of the church. He doesn't give external examples as, as to why they should be striving for unity and living in humility with one another. No, he gives an external he gives an inter sorry, he gives an eternal example as to why we strive for this unity. It's our union with Christ. This is the root for all of our interactions when it comes to the people of God. Now some of you in here might not know what the union of Christ means, what it looks like. And that's okay. Because for the rest of our time, I want to give you a definition of what it means and why it's important and why it's one of the most beautiful doctrines that we should hold on to. And I would even make this claim, it's one of the most important doctrines when it comes to our salvation. More important than justification, sanctification, glorification, because all of those things are wrapped up in being united to Christ. So what is this beautiful doctrine? Louis Burkhoff defines it like this. It is the intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people, in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength, of their blessedness and salvation. The phrase, in him or with him, is the most important language as it relates to our salvation as believers. See, this union with Christ is, as Kyle Worley would say, our identification, participation, and incorporation into the body of Christ. We identify with Christ, and He identifies with us. We participate in this union because it's not just a static thing when we are saved. But it is a dynamic relationship that we are called into. And it is an incorporation. We have been brought into union with Christ. And it's not just that Christ is now our representative, but he has brought us into a body, as we would call the communion of saints, the church. So it's not just individualistic. And we see this in the New Testament, specifically in Paul's writings. We find it in Ephesians 1, 3 through 10, where the ultimate example of the, our union with Christ is found. Now, I'm not going to read the entire passage to you, but I would encourage you to go back this week and read Paul's writings starting in Ephesians 1. And see this beautiful example of your union with Christ. Galatians 2.20 is another one. For I have been crucified with Christ, for it is no longer I that live, but He that lives in me. Romans 6.4 and 5 shows us our union with Him. Acts 9, where most theologians and most pastors would believe that the foundation for Paul's understanding of his union with Christ starts. If you guys remember, Acts 9 is the salvation story of Saul, right? He's on the road to Damascus, and what happens? He's blinded by Jesus. And what does Jesus say to Paul? Why are you persecuting, persecuting me? 
Jesus so identifies with his people that when they were persecuted, he was persecuted. And this is the foundation for all of Paul's writings, this union with Christ. It anchored everything he wrote. And I would encourage you, if you have time through this week, or maybe take the next month or two and read all of Paul's letters and highlight these phrases of with Christ, in Christ, through Christ, and into Christ. You'll see them scattered and littered throughout all of Paul's writings. Because he was so enamored and in love with this union. And he talks about it most commonly in his letters. We also find it in the Old Testament. It's not just something new that comes on scene. Anytime that you see a covenant being mentioned in the Old Testament, it is a foreshadow of your union with Christ. So here's the reality of this union. And why it's so important that we identify, we participate, and we are incorporated in and with and through and into Christ. Because in Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in his heavenly session, we are united to him in all of it. We are united to Christ in every bit of his life and his ministry. And this is a pivotal part for us to recognize because being united to Christ means that we are, un- we are knit to the one who obeyed perfectly on our behalf. And his righteousness has been imputed to us. In Christ's death, we are knit to the one who has paid the full penalty of sin. That penalty that we deserved but could never fulfill. Christ's resurrection, we are knit to the one who triumphed over death. That's why we too can say, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? In Christ's ascension, we are knit to the one who is in the very presence of God the Father. And in Christ's heavenly session, which is his ongoing work, we are participants in his mission to the world. What can be said about Christ can be said about you and can be said about me. This is why this doctrine is so beautiful. Because what can be said about him can be said about you and about me because we are in him and he is in And it doesn't just have implications for being justified before God. This union with Christ also has implications for how we live and how we are sanctified and made holy. Because this beautiful truth also calls us to live as Christ has lived. That's the whole point of what Paul is saying in verse 5, right? When he says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus... How can we do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit? How can we count others better than ourselves? How can we think of others and their interests? Because this is the mind that Christ had. And this is the mind that we now have because we are in Him. And so, we are called to live as Christ lived. 
to those around us, and most importantly, to those inside the body of Christ. Jesus says in John 13, 15, that you, they will know my disciples by what? How they love one another. This is why we are leaning into looking at those one another's found in the New Testament. Because Jesus calls us to love one another. And this love is going to be a reflection of what and who we believe in Christ to the world around us. And so we need to be pursuing this unity as a church because Christ has been united to us and us to Him. And here's why, as I've already kind of talked about, this doctrine matters. Why I've spent so much time building and showing you what this unity with Christ looks like and means. Because oftentimes as believers, we can feel like we aren't in unity with Christ, right? We can feel like our union with Christ isn't there. Whether it's we've fallen into sin, whether there's temptations that we keep falling into, whether it's a relationship that has been broken that has now caused our relationship with the Lord and fellowship to not feel like it's there. Our union can feel like it's incomplete. But this doctrine shows us that the Scriptures are clear that we are not fundamentally righteous and saved because of anything that we have done. Right? There is security in this union because it's not based on anything that we have done, but it's based on what Christ has done on the cross for us and in our place. John Calvin says, It is the same man that we are now righteous in Christ, not in respect of our rendering satisfaction to the justice of God by our own works, but because we are judged of in connection with Christ's righteousness which we have put on by faith, that it might be ours. This is what we preach week in and week out when it comes to 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? I I hope you guys have memorized this verse because I think we say it every single week, if not almost every other week, that He made Him who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news of our union with Christ. That you have not, cannot, will not contribute anything to your salvation except the sin that separated you. The entirety of your salvation is sourced in being placed in this union with Christ. It is God's grace to you, to me, accomplishing what we could not accomplish for ourselves. And because we could not do anything, and because this salvation is based on being in Christ, we have security. We are secure in knowing that our union with Christ can never be taken. There's nothing, as Romans 8 says, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. He is our security.
As we've sang before, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. And that includes your own schemes, right? That includes things that you have done or have tried to do. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. This is what we get to worship in, have hope in, security in, in this union with Christ. That's why it's so important for us to have this foundation that we are secured in Him. But that doesn't mean that our communion with God doesn't feel distant. That, that may be true. And the reason why I wanted to bring up union versus communion is our union is what is secure because of Christ. But our communion with God may feel off because of sin, because of relationships. Our fellowship may feel distant. We may lack assurance because there may be things that need to be repented of. Or, and this reality is true, we live in a fallen, broken world, which means that we're not always going to feel like we are in fellowship with God just because. But it's the reality of our union that should bring us hope and joy and should lead us to pursue enjoyment with God and pursue enjoyment with one another. Union with Christ helps battle these deceptions that we can fall into where we feel like we've been separated from the love of God. And the beautiful reality of this as well is that this union with Christ, even though we are secure in Christ, we have a double kind of security. Paul shows us in Ephesians 1 that our seal of being in Christ is sealed with God Himself, the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 1, verse 13. He says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glorious grace. Think about that for a second. That there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ because God Himself, the Holy Spirit, is securing that promise. And so when our communion with God feels off, I hope that you can run to this union. Run to the New Testament and see. Run to the covenants in the Old Testament and see that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And go back to these beautiful reminders of this union that you have and that you now celebrate. But this union should also compel us to be united to one another. This is what Paul is preaching in Philippians 2 and throughout this book, is to be united to one another because this is who you are and you are united to Christ. And so live in humility towards one another. Fulfill the one another's that we are going to talk about in these next coming weeks. Because you recognize that your union with Christ and being incorporated into the body of Christ is taking you beyond an individual faith. 
an individual corporation that is just you and God. This union with Christ becomes our foundation and bond for our fellowship with one another. As R.C. Sproul says, we all now share a common adoption so that we are all a part of the family of God and we are all a part of the communion of the saints. What I hope you guys see in the next coming weeks is that all of these 59 one another's, they're all in the language of family, right? They're all in familial language that is calling each other to understand this is our unity. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have been adopted in. We have been brought into this family. And this is why we should pursue each other. This is how we should look to one another. And so here's my challenge for us this morning as well as for the rest of the year. What would it look like to Indianapolis, to the world around us, to your neighborhood, to your workplace, wherever your spheres of influence are, what would it look like if the culture of the district church so heavily emphasized this unity and pursued discipleship? You remember the definition of discipleship, helping others follow Jesus. What if we so heavily pursued this that the world around us takes attention to it? That they know we are disciples of Jesus based on how we love one another? What if this rule of life was persistent year in and year out? When people came to the district church, they could see that we had a culture of discipleship. Because our union with Christ should lead us to this union with one another. And so I'm praying and hoping that that would be our resolve as a church. I know it's going to be for me. I know it's been something that our elders have talked about, Dwayne and Ransford and myself. We are praying and hoping that this would be our culture. Not just for 2022, but for as long as God sees fit to have this church here in Indianapolis. And I hope that that would be a part of your prayer for your own life and the life of the church. Because here's the thing, and I know I said this earlier, the more that we pursue discipleship with one another, the more evangelism should happen, the more hospitality should happen, the more missions in this city should happen. But we need to, as Paul says in Philippians 1, Make sure that our culture is striving side by side, standing firm in the faith in one spirit and with one mind for the faith of the gospel. So that's my challenge for us this year. And I hope that we can take on this challenge and I hope that you would join me and those who would hear this message past today would join me and join us pursuing a culture of discipleship because we have been united to one another in this beautiful faith. And one of the ways that we celebrate physically this unity with Christ is through communion. It is a physical presence for us to show us that we have been given this grace. But it's not just a physical means of grace for us to participate in. It's for us to be able to look around and see those who are taking this communion are also a part of 
this union with Christ. We should be able to look around and celebrate, hey, that's my brother, that's my sister in Christ. That's who I need to pursue and love and help follow Jesus more. And so if you don't already have the elements of bread and juice, I would ask that you go and grab them so that we can celebrate this communion together. I'm going to give you time to do that. And as you are doing that, I want to instruct us. Communion, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11, gives us some instruction. Maybe there's some of us in here that need to examine ourselves and confess some sin before the Lord. Maybe you haven't pursued discipleship as we have been called to pursue discipleship. That's something that you need to bring before the Lord and repent of. Maybe there is some relational conflict that needs to be dealt with before you take this. Jesus would say that it is far more important for brothers and sisters in Christ to be in unity before we take this. Then finally, if you have not been united to Christ, I would ask that you refrain from this gift. And I would ask that you come talk to me or Ransford or Dwayne, and we'd love to to share with you what union with Christ looks like and means. So I'm going to lead us through 1 Corinthians 11 here, and then we're going to celebrate together what Christ has done for us by the breaking of His body and the shedding of His blood. Paul says this, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us proclaim together this Lord's death and celebrate this union with Christ that we have. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. And Lord, we thank you for this beautiful reality that we have as believers in Christ. United to you and in you and with you. And you are united to us. Lord, may this be a rule of life that we live, not only individually, but also corporately, as a, that we pursue helping one another follow Jesus more, that we would take the call of being a culture of disciple makers, of men and women who pursue discipleship long to see it in our church. And may that overflow into this world. May our love for one another be a reflection of who we are in you. And may we never lose sight of our union with you. That despite our feelings, despite fellowship feeling fractured, may we be able to run back to your word and see this truth that we are in you and you are in us and there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. May we hold on to this truth, Lord. 
May 2022 be a reflection of this truth in this church and in our lives. We praise you for the gift of grace that you've given to us in Christ. For it's in his name. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at